Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Russia in Revolution, and we're in the middle of a chapter about how the new economic policy affected society and people, culture at large. So let's dive in. The Arts and Utopia In the preceding section, Bolshevik policies in the spheres of healthcare and education were characterized as designs for a welfare state, since that idea provides a familiar benchmark against which we can judge their progress. It also accurately represents the ethos of much policy making. Yet from the viewpoint of Marxist theory, the idea of a welfare state would have seemed a quite inappropriate benchmark since Bolshevik ambitions went far beyond the idea of a state that protected and promoted the social welfare of its citizens. For them, concrete reforms were but steps along a path that was to lead to a radically new form of society based on far-reaching collectivism and equality. Yet it would be wide of the mark to describe the Bolshevik leadership during NEP as being inspired by utopianism. Indeed, compared with the utopian high point of 1920, their sights had been substantially lowered. For sections of the population, however, mainly artists, intellectuals, and urban youth, the NEP years offered a space in which a plethora of utopian visions could be elaborated and pursued. A paradox of NEP was that the retreat forced on the Bolsheviks by civil war devastation and economic backwardness, and the apparent turn towards pragmatic gradualism, was compensated for by bold imaginings and anticipations of the communist future. The Marxist tradition had generally eschewed the attempt to outline what the future communist society would look like. In the Communist Manifesto, it is true, the young Marx and Engels had given qualified approval to the practical proposals of their utopian predecessors, such as Henri de Saint-Simon, Charles Fourier, or Robert Owen, proposals they listed as, quote, the abolition of the distinction between town and country, of the family, of the carrying on of industries for the account of private individuals, and of the wage system, the proclamation of social harmony, the conversion of the functions of the state into a mere superintendence of production. End quote. Footnote 36. These proposals never ceased to galvanize the conception of communist society held by Marx and Engels, but in their mature work they contrasted their own scientific conception of socialism with that of the utopian socialists, insisting that the latter took no account of stages of historical development or of class struggle as the motive force of historical change. The Bolsheviks inherited this aversion to utopian speculation, seeing it as antipathetic to their understanding of socialism as something that must be worked out by humanity in accordance with the laws of history, rather than some idealized blueprint. Yet, a utopian vision necessarily sustained revolutionaries in the Tsarist period, however hard-nosed they liked to appear. Footnote 37. Lenin was deeply influenced by the non-Marxist utopianism of Nikolai Chernyshevsky, whose What is to be Done, 1863, envisioned a community, 
symbolized in the novel by a crystal palace, united around work, comradeship, and rational egotism. After 1905, a neo-positivist current emerged in the Bolshevik faction that elaborated ideas of god-building and proletarian culture, and that imagined the proletariat forging a biologically, intellectually, and socially perfect humanity. Its key exponent was Alexander Bogdanov, who penned two sci-fi novels about a communist society on the planet Mars. Red Star, published in 1908, and Engineer Many, published in 1913. In the society of the future, science has conquered nature through nuclear propulsion, blood transfusion, unisexuality, and, rather worrisomely, through atomic fallout. Very different in tone was the most famous dystopia of this period. Evgeny Zamoyatin's We, completed in 1919-1920, in which the state imposes conformity on all its citizens, regulating their lives through science and demanding absolute loyalty. Footnote 38. Lenin disliked all such fantasies, yet was not immune himself to utopian flights of fancy. In State and Revolution, completed while he was in hiding in Finland in August and September 1917, he set out a vision of communist society in which the police and standing army would be abolished, all officials elected, and administration simplified to the point that a cook or housekeeper could learn to run public affairs. This latter an echo of St. Simon's expectation that the government of men would be replaced by the administration of things. Footnote 39. The October Revolution generated an efflorescence of radical experimentation in the arts that was unsurpassed anywhere else in the world. Footnote 40. It was symbolized in Kazimir Malevich's Black Square, Vladimir Tatlin's Monument to the Third International, Vsevolod Meyerhold's Biomechanical Drama, the transrational poetry of Velimir Klebnikov, the strident verses of Vladimir Mayakovsky, and the experiments of Nikolai Rozlovets in forging a new tonal system in music. Footnote 41. The avant-garde, which had emerged around 1908, was driven by a desire to destroy old aesthetic norms and convinced that art had the power to transform life, which it identified with the utopian possibilities opened up by the revolution. Many of its representatives, such as Malevich, Alexander Rachenko, Tatlin, and Wassily Kandinsky in the visual arts, gained positions of influence within new Soviet institutions. Though fired by fierce aesthetic conflict, the avant-garde was loosely leftist in political sympathies and iconoclastic in spirit though the futurist call to, quote, throw Pushkin, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, etc. overboard from the ship of modernity, end quote, should probably be taken with a large pinch of salt. Nevertheless, all saw the revolutionization of artistic practice as part of the larger project of changing the role of art in society. Mayakovsky buttonholed the masses with his declamatory staccato verse, as in his poem of 1920. Quote, Onward. Drive your elbows into ribs like iron spikes. Crash your fists into the jaws of the elegant 
charity. Gentlemen tightly buttoned into frock coats. End quote. Footnote 42. Theatre was supreme among the arts during the Civil War, even though most theatre professionals initially perceived the seizure of power as a threat to their artistic autonomy. The principal concern of the Bolsheviks was to give impetus to the drive to democratize the theatre, but though the composition of theatre audiences became more plebeian, the repertoire and production values of the majority of theatres changed barely at all. This was a source of irritation both to Pretelkult and especially to the theatrical avant-garde. Mayerhold's production of Mayakovsky's Mystery Booth, staged to mark the first anniversary of the October Revolution, met with incomprehension owing to its hybrid of futurism, apocalypticism, circus acrobatics, and folk humour. Mayerhold's system of biomechanics, in some ways analogous to the vogue for the scientific organization of labor, sought to purge acting of psychological motivation by removing superfluous motion, gesture, and expression from the actor's technique. His efforts to unleash a theatrical October, however, were blocked by the Commissar of Enlightenment, Lunacharsky, who insisted on the value of preserving traditional theater and the classical repertoire. Nevertheless, he defended the principle of creative freedom for different approaches, including the avant-garde, and did not share Lenin's intolerance of absurd and perverted avant-garde art. See figure 7.2. With NEP, architecture, the novel, and cinema came into their own. Constructivism was the one movement in the visual arts born directly out of the October Revolution. In seeking to fuse the artistic and technological aspects of production, the constructivists sought to create an environment in which the new socialist person could flourish by remaking the fabric of everyday life along rational collectivist lines. Tatlin urged citizens to, quote, declare war on chests of drawers and sideboards, arguing that, a new everyday life requires new objects. It is for this reason that I show such interest in organic form as a point of departure for the creation of new objects. End quote. Tatlin's own monument to the Third International, though predating constructivism, exemplified this ethos, comprising an immense tower consisting of a stack of three glass geometric volumes, encased in a double conical spiral of iron that thrust up at an acute angle. See figure 7.3. Constructivist interest in the properties of materials and in industrial design had a huge influence on the modern movements in agriculture, photography, commercial advertising, home furnishings, fabrics, and cinema. In print graphics, for instance, it produced a geometric style with sharp angles for dynamism and circles for stability, often featuring scraps of photographic imagery or declamatory text. It was probably in literature that the 1920s saw the most creative ferment. Footnote 43. Poets such as Alexander Bloch, Sergei Asenin, and André Bellier identified with the spiritual maximalism of the revolution. 
denouncing petty bourgeois philistinism and celebrating the destructive energies of the peasantry. Somewhat in this spirit was what many considered to be the first Soviet novel. Boris Pilnyak's Naked Year, 1922, set amid the chaos of civil war. This depicted the revolution as a vengeful Asiatic force, stripping off the veneer of civilization. Other writers, such as Konstantin Fedin, Mikhail Zoschenko, and Vyacheslav Ivanov, hailed the revolution as a liberation of the fantastic imagination, but came under fire for being ideologically empty from those, such as the prolet cultist Smithy group, who rejected anything that smacked of art for art's sake, lauding instead collectivism, labour, and the cult of the machine. As the memory of the Civil War faded, writing began to become less partisan, more reflective of the uncertainties of NEP society. Noteworthy was the efflorescence of satire in the tragicomic work of Zoschenko, whose subject matter was petty absurdity of daily Soviet life and whose language parodied the speech of semi-literate proletarians. A humanistic, apolitical aesthetic also began to gain ground, evident in the poetry of Mandelstam and Akhmatova, who sought to cultivate lyricism and a language of precision, clarity, and restraint. It was in reaction to this, and more fundamentally, to the unsettling eddies of NEP, that in 1928 the Association of Proletarian Writers demanded that literature should obey a social command. This aesthetic, which saw fiction as having little value except as a sociological document, chimed with the tastes of newly literate readers who craved for positive, unambiguous characters, a secure narrative, and moral certainties. In the realm of literary theory, scholars such as Viktor Shkovsky, Boris Eichenbaum, and Vladimir Propp created the formalist school, which stressed the formal qualities of the text, such as structure, rhythm, and technical use of language, rather than content. The cinema, too, blossomed, generating stylistic diversity, innovation, and theoretical advance, with Soviet studios making 514 films between 1925 and 1929. Footnote 44. Classics of world cinema were produced by directors such as Sergei Eisenstein, Ziga Vertov, Vsevolod Pudovkin, and Alexander Dovzenko, some of whom had cut their teeth making propaganda shorts during the Civil War, and many of whom were influenced by constructivism. As in other artistic fields, there was sharp debate. In cinema, it concerned the virtues of documentary as opposed to feature film, of propaganda as opposed to entertainment. The factory of eccentric actors looked to American jazz, dance, and technology for inspiration, and its iconoclastic film of Gogol's overcoat sought through the concept of impeded form to stimulate the visual awareness of the audience by juxtaposing unexpected images. The principle of montage was central to the very different aesthetic of the Cinei group based around the film director Zygo Vertov, which proclaimed, quote, No illusion. Down with the actor and scenery. End quote. 
Perhaps the most masterly exponent of montage was Sergei Eisenstein, whose revolutionary trilogy, Strike, Battleship Potemkin, October, with its mythic presentation of the masses as hero, was characterized by visual daring and operatic style. With the brashness typical of the avant-garde, he proclaimed, quote, By film, I understand tenditiousness and nothing else. End quote. Yet most of this cinema was not popular with the public, nor with party leaders. Even Eisenstein's films, though politically impeccable, were greeted lukewarmly by officialdom because of their experimental editing, shooting, and mise-en-scene. The cinema-going public preferred Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks, and no less than 85% of movies screened were imports, mainly from the USA. The revival of commercial mass culture that took place with NEP left the leadership in no doubt that the public preferred escapist fiction, light music, comedy, and variety acts to avant-garde art or political propaganda. Official concern that art should become more accessible to workers and peasants was one reason why, in the second half of the 1920s, the regime came to look with increasing favour on the many artists who had continued, in spite of the revolution, to work within broadly realist and figurative genres. The end of the Civil War saw no letting up in the persecution of intellectual dissent. In August 1921, the execution of Petrograd poet Nikolai Gumilev, arrested in the sweep against a putatively counter-revolutionary group led by geography professor Tagantsev, marked a watershed in the state's relations with intellectuals. In June 1922, various independent journalists were shut down, including an academic journalist, The Economist, Economist, which had a tiny circulation, but which Lenin described as, quote, the organ of contemporary serf owners who cover themselves in the mantle of science and democracy, end quote. In that year, the Politburo discussed the deportation of wavering intellectuals no fewer than 30 times, eventually deciding to expel about 200 intellectuals, plus their family members, in August. They included the historians A. A. Kizavedder and A. V. Florovsky, and the religious philosophers N. A. Berdiaev and S. L. Frank. Footnote 45. Nevertheless, on the whole, the 1920s were a decade in which a degree of pluralism was tolerated in education, the arts, and the sciences, even if the authorities steadily tightened their ideological grip. NEP saw a revival of the civil society that had flourished after 1905. In 1928, there were still 4,480 public organizations in existence. According to an incomplete list for the RSFSR, embracing everything from scientific to antiquarian to sporting organizations. However, of 368 all union organizations that applied for formal recognition, the OGPU turned down no fewer than 261 on the grounds that they might threaten public order, encourage nationalist dissension, or promote mysticism. The Vegetarian Society, for instance, was refused recognition, quote, for political considerations, 
End quote. Footnote 46. With NEP, private publishing houses were licensed once again. They published a wide variety of books, although their share of the total output of books was small and declining. In 1922, the ominously named Main Directorate for the Protection of State Secrets in the Press, Glavlit, was set up, charged with censoring domestic and imported printed works, manuscripts, and photos. In the tradition of the Tsarist censor, it drew up lists of banned works. In April 1925, it even forbade the press to publish information on suicides or cases of insanity connected to unemployment or hunger. Footnote 47. A parallel agency was created in 1923 to monitor the content of plays, films, concerts, phonograph records, and other public performances. The Chief Committee for Repertoire in 1926 banned the staging of plays in the countryside that criticized Soviet policy, presented a positive view of religion, celebrated the traditional rural way of life, or that featured monks even as marginal characters. By July 1924, it had banned 216 foreign films because of the, quote, threat to the ideological education of workers and peasants in our country, end quote, including Fritz Lang's Dr. Mabusa, footnote 48. Moreover, many films that were allowed were deemed not to be suitable for a worker-peasant audience. This was a much stricter censorship than had appertained after the 1905 revolution. One senses that the Bolsheviks were not motivated simply by ideological rectitude, but by a fear that alien cultural forces threatened to engulf them. In 1922, the universities lost most of their autonomy, in spite of a strike by academics in Moscow and elsewhere, although the Academy of Sciences, remarkably, maintained its autonomy until 1929 when it was purged of counter-revolutionaries. Footnote 49. In 1921, an institute of red professors was formed to train cadres to take over the universities, and the state academic council began rather tentatively to weed out theologians, mystics, and representatives of extreme idealism from institutions of higher education. In principle, historical materialism and the history of the Bolshevik party were made compulsory subjects for all students, but lack of teachers and textbooks meant that this remained a dead letter. Natural sciences were left alone, and by the mid-1920s, scientific research claimed a higher proportion of GDP in Russia than in most Western countries. Economics saw generally innovative thinking on Marxist lines by Nikolai Kondratev, Eugene Varga, Evgeny Slutsky, Preobrazensky, and Bukharin. Within philosophy, dialecticians argued that dialectics was a universal science embracing nature and society, while mechanicists argued that philosophy had no place in scientific inquiry. History, although not subject to direct party interference, was dominated by the Marxist Mikhail Pokrovsky, who explained Russia's development exclusively in terms of class struggle and modes of production. Higher education suffered from underfunding throughout the 1920s. 
The Bolsheviks were committed to opening up higher education to workers and poor peasants, and in 1919 set up workers' faculties to provide crash courses to enable workers and poor peasants to enroll on degree programs. Some 43,000 students graduated from these during the 1920s. Not a high number. Universities were overcrowded and conditions appalling, with many students permanently hungry and sick. The number of graduates increased from 136,000 in 1913 to 233,000 in 1928, and women significantly increased their representation. Footnote 50. In June 1922, communist cells in the universities were ordered to weed out students from non-proletarian backgrounds. Quote, the grandfather of such and such was a landowner. End quote. In 1924, 18,000 students were purged, many of them accused of being supporters of Trotsky. Academically able middle-class students, who, unlike the students from the workers' faculties, had to pay fees, resented being excluded on non-academic grounds. By 1925, the world's first instance of affirmative action in higher education had not been unsuccessful, since workers and peasants comprised 43% of the university's student body. At the same time, it had led to a fall in academic standards, so that in 1925, academic criteria for selection were reintroduced, Nevertheless, two years later, 55% of all students were repeating a year. In spite of the substantial change in the social composition of the student body, Bukharin could complain to the 13th Party Congress in 1924 that, quote, very little of higher education has been won to us, end quote. During the 1920s, the position of the intelligentsia remained ambiguous. Footnote 51. The state needed teachers, scientists, planners, managers, doctors, and engineers, and so it encouraged the educated to put their expertise to the service of socialism. From the mid-1920s, salaries began to rise and material privileges accrued. As against that, the regime continued to fear the intelligentsia as a compelling elite with pretensions to moral authority, one likely to impede its efforts to establish ideological hegemony. The longer-term aim was to replace the bourgeois intelligentsia with a new proletarian one that would be loyal to the Soviet state. However, progress towards that goal was slow, and some consider that it was to accelerate progress that, in 1928, a cultural revolution, in uppercase, was launched. Footnote 52. This saw zealous exponents of proletarian principles attack exponents of more tolerant or pluralistic positions in various intellectual and cultural fields. Between 1928 and 1931, hardliners shoved out moderates, denounced avant-garde experimentalism, and drastically limited the range of approved styles in art, music, architecture, film, and all academic principles. Nevertheless, the extraordinary fact is that despite its travise, which would worsen massively during the 1930s, the intelligentsia retained a distinct social identity, 
partly through informal networks, personal ties, and institutional loyalties, and partly through adherence to the 19th century ideal of raising the cultural level of the common people. The 1920s was thus an era of unbounded artistic diversity and creativity, yet it saw the party steadily step up its direction of artistic developments through censorship, control of funding, especially in relation to expensive ventures such as film, and through direct interventions, the party increased its control of the arts and literature. Convinced of the power of art to shape human consciousness, it was not prepared to leave the direction of intellectual and cultural life to the spontaneous whims of the individual artist or to the commercial vagaries of the market. In addition, party leaders were bothered by the gap between the avant-garde and popular taste and by the fact that the propaganda potential of the arts was undercut by artists' fondness for formal innovation and abstraction. Stalin, a great aficionado of the cinema, described film in 1924 as, quote, the most important means of mass agitation, end quote. Yet most of the films that have entered into cinema history were difficult for popular audiences to appreciate. Increasingly, the avant-garde's ethos of permanent revolution was at odds with the party's concern for political stability. That said, the exercise of party control was never secure or efficient at this time, and at the end of our period, the issue of what should constitute an appropriate art for a socialist society erupted in fierce disputation. Family and Gender Relations the Bolsheviks came to power with a radical program for the liberation of women and the radical transformation of the family. Footnote 53. Their reforming zeal was evidenced in the comprehensive Code on Marriage, the Family and Guardianship ratified in October 1918, which equalized women's legal status with men's, removed marriage from the hands of the church, allowed a married couple to choose either the husband's or wife's surname, allowed both spouses to retain the right to their property and earnings, granted children born outside wedlock the same rights as those born to married couples, and, not least, made divorce available at the request of either party. Under the old regime, the church had granted divorce in only the rarest of circumstances involving adultery, abandonment, sexual incapacity, or penal exile. Although between 1884 and 1914, 30,000 to 40,000 wives managed to persuade the imperial chancellery to allow them to separate from their husbands. Footnote 54. In Bolshevik ideology, the key to woman's liberation lay in taking her out of the confines of the family, where she was subordinate to her husband and oppressed by the drudgery of childcare and housework, and bringing her into the sphere of wage work. There, she would gain economic independence and develop class consciousness. For this to happen, however, it was recognized that the state would need to take over the tasks of childcare and housework, described by Lenin as, quote, the most unproductive, the most savage, and the most arduous work a woman can do, end quote. 
During the first years of the revolution, official propaganda summoned women to set aside their responsibilities to husbands and children and to become fighters on behalf of oppressed humanity. Ephrosinea Marokulina, a peasant who became an instructor in Vyatka province, was hailed as an archetypal new woman. Quote, she forgot her family, her children, the household. With enthusiasm, she threw herself into the new business of enlightening her dark, downtrodden sisters. End quote. Footnote 55. Aran Zalkind, a psychoneurologist, deprecated weak, fragile femininity, the result of thousands of years of women's enslavement, and urged working-class women physiologically to become more like men. Footnote 56. Yet those who aspired to become new women were few in number. By and large, the social and economic chaos of the Civil War meant that women's energies were concentrated on the struggle for survival. Their lack of interest in the drama of revolution reinforced the traditional image of the woman as Baba, as dark and backward, and enthralled to her husband and priest. It was to shake lower-class women out of their apathy that a women's department was established by the party in 1919, headed by Inessa Armand and Alexandra Kolontai. Footnote 57. Historically, the Bolsheviks had mistrusted separate organization of women since they believed it smacked of bourgeois feminism and threatened to bring division into the ranks of the proletariat. Yet, they had been the first Russian Socialist Party to seek to organize working women. Much of the credit for this went to Kalantai, who had been one of the few to rally to Lenin's view of the First World War. Although after she became a leader of the workers' opposition, she found herself the object of his spleen. The women's department believed that working women could be liberated only if they joined forces with working men, but they insisted that women's backwardness could only be overcome if they were mobilized around issues of direct interest to them, such as literacy classes, creches, collective dining rooms, or consumer cooperatives. During the 1920s, women's issues figured low on the priorities of the party leadership, and the department was permanently underfunded and heavily dependent on volunteers. Yet it undertook a range of campaigns, centered on conferences of women delegates against wage and hiring discrimination, sexual harassment, layoffs of women, alcoholism, and wife battering. In 1926-27, 620,000 women across the USSR attended delegate conferences held by the department. In faraway Irkutsk, on the 1st of March 1927, the Inter-Union Conference of Working Women passed a resolution declaring that, quote, It is necessary to fight for the liberation of women and to struggle against men, end quote. While in equally faraway Barnaul, a women's conference described relations between men and women workers as abnormal. No doubt Moscow looked askance at this feminist deviation in Siberia. In the newly formed republics of Central Asia, feminism was mobilized as part of a cultural revolution. See figure 7.4. Up to 1926, attacks on Muslim clerics as 
class oppressors, and on landlords who controlled land and water rights had been only partially effective. Thus, in 1927, party leaders in Tashkent decided, partly at the urging of enthusiastic Zenotdal activists, to focus on attacking feudal patriarchal relics. Footnote 58. In that year, an aggressive campaign was launched against bride price, polygamy, female segregation, and seclusion, aimed at breaking the power of mullahs and village and clan elders. On the 8th of March 1927, International Women's Day, 10,000 women threw off the head-to-toe veils of horsehair and cotton which women over the age of 9 or 10 were required to wear in the presence of unrelated men. Their menfolk protested that the Bolsheviks were, quote, turning women into harlots, end quote, and more than 800 women died in honor crimes. Moscow seized on this heavy-handed bungling, and it became an indirect reason why the women's department was shut down in 1930. However, there is little doubt that Moscow countenanced the initiative of local party leaders, especially in Uzbekistan, to launch a broad offensive against Islam, although one centered on religious schools and the property belonging to religious endowments. Wakf. Footnote 59. The Bolsheviks showed far less interest in challenging male gender roles. Footnote 60. They rejected the patriarchal notion that men had a God-given right to rule over women by virtue of their assumed superior physical strength and wisdom. Quote, rooting out the old master right of the man, end quote, as Lenin put it. And during the 1920s, the trade unions and the women's department attacked practices associated with patriarchal authority, such as wife-beating, drunkenness, and the physical abuse of children. Yet fundamentally, the revolution reconfigured, rather than unseated, the dominant masculine norm. As we have seen, a fraternal model substituted for a patriarchal model of masculinity. In the party, Cheka, and Red Army, young men fought for the revolution as brothers, united in comradeship and commitment to struggle. This was not just a matter of the Civil War promoting an aggressive, macho style, symbolized in the gun-toting, leather-jacketed commissar, or Cheka operative. Revolutionary fraternity ran deep in the new political culture, reflected in priority of the public over the private, the military front over the home front, production over reproduction. There was little space for women in the fighting band of brothers, and female identities continued largely to be defined by the family and motherhood. The dominance of a masculine norm was subliminally conveyed in pictorial representations of revolution, where totemic workers, peasants, or Red Army soldiers were men, and where women occupied a secondary role as helpers. Footnote 61. In spite of the discourse of women's emancipation, male party leaders continued to take for granted certain assumptions about the complementary roles of the sexes, associating men with the public, women with the private, and even perpetuating a 19th century tendency to idealize the female sex as morally superior to men, especially because of the maternal role. In the course of the 1920s, gender was one of the first areas in which a return of the repressed became apparent, 
as the fraternal model of masculinity gave way to a more patriarchal one, even as the discourse of women's emancipation continued to reverberate. Initially, many Bolsheviks believed that the family, as an institution based on private property, would be abolished under communism, with the state taking responsibility for the education and care of children and for domestic labor. Yet the battering that the family received between 1918 and 1922 came about more as a result of socio-economic disintegration than of ideological attack. Under the assault of war, flight, hunger, and disease, spouses separated, children were cast adrift, and casual sexual relationships flourished. Legislation made it easier for men to divorce their spouses, and the numerical imbalance between the sexes made it easier still for men to take up with new partners. As a result, the economic position of many women, left to support families without the assistance of menfolk, worsened. For poor, vulnerable, single mothers, the stability of the patriarchal family was preferable to abandonment. Moreover, the ideological attack on the family fomented rumours, especially among the elderly and the religious, that the Bolsheviks were out to nationalise women, share wives, or snatch children from their cradles. Partly in response to the devastation caused by war, the marriage rate recovered rapidly during the 1920s, so that by 1926 it was over a third higher than in 1913. High female unemployment meant that there was a growing trend for the husband to be the family breadwinner. At the same time, cuts in state subsidies led to the closure of the public dining halls, creches, and communal laundries that had been a feature of war communism, leaving women once again responsible for looking after children, cooking, cleaning, and sewing. A time-budget survey of 76 working-class families in 1922 showed that women only managed 6 hours and 45 minutes of sleep, compared with 8 hours for men. Footnote 62. The plight of abandoned women and children, unemployment, and women's family responsibilities shaped responses to the nationwide debate led to the new family code promulgated in 1926. This simplified divorce procedure, but introduced stricter rules on alimony, making men rather than the state responsible for the maintenance of children. It also established joint ownership of property acquired during marriage. To some extent, it compromised with popular assumptions about the mutual responsibilities of family members, but it was also in tune with an emerging consensus among legal experts that the family would have to serve as the basic institution of social welfare for the time being, since the state lacked resources for a full-blown welfare system. It also chimed with rising concern that glaring social problems such as illegitimacy, abandoned children, hooliganism, and juvenile crime were linked to the breakdown of the family. If the 1920s saw conventional assumptions about the family and marriage increasingly influence official thinking, it would be wrong to assume that the revolution had had no impact on popular attitudes and practice. Within less than a decade, 
European Russia had the highest divorce rate in the world, divorce being widespread even in rural communities. A woman in Kemerovo informed the village Soviet, quote, For ten years, I could see no way out and feared to sin, but now it is permissible, thanks to the decree issued by our dear Ilyich. A woman can release herself from her Kulak husband and live freely. End quote. Footnote 63. Such women, of course, were a minority, but they dramatized the fact that the traditional way of life was under strain. Moreover, if marriage was as popular as ever, the age of marriage was rising in both the town and countryside. And although church marriage continued to be the norm in the countryside, less than a third of marriages in Moscow were accompanied by a church ceremony by 1925. From a nadir in 1922, the birth rate grew exceptionally fast, but the 1920s also saw the long-term trend towards a fall in fertility gather pace. This was mainly evident in the towns, but as levels of female education and employment rose, and as the age of marriage was delayed, there was an overall decline in fertility. In 1920, Russia became the first country in the world to legalize abortion, a measure motivated by concern that in the prevailing conditions, society could not support children properly, rather than by recognition of a woman's right to choose whether or not to have a child. Indeed, most Bolsheviks took it for granted that it was a woman's duty to fulfill her role as a mother. Even Kolontai believed that childbirth is a social obligation. Nevertheless, by the late 1920s, the number of abortions in Russian cities already surpassed the number of births, and the typical woman seeking an abortion was not the unmarried or unemployed young woman envisaged in the 1920 decree, but a married woman with at least one child who was equally likely to be a housewife or a wage earner. In the maelstrom of civil war, traditional sexual taboos had been swept aside. Surveys of students in the 1920s purported to show that around a half of women and nearly two-thirds of men had had casual sex, and that as many as 85% believed that sex was a matter of physiological need. Some in the Komsomol were convinced that love was a bourgeois phenomenon condemned to wither away. Few party leaders, however, saw sexual revolution as an element in the wider social revolution. Kolontai demanded freedom for the winged Eros, liberated from the trammels of private property, the subjugation of women, and moral hypocrisy. She championed women's right to autonomy and fulfillment in personal relations rather than free love. But she became notorious for a statement in which she had likened the sexual act to quenching a hunger or thirst. Her views were quite untypical of mainstream Bolshevik thinking. Lenin, in particular, deplored the hypertrophy in sexual matters and advocated sublimation through healthy sport, swimming, racing, walking, bodily exercises of every kind, and many-sided intellectual interests. As early as 1922, Bukharin, speaking as the Komsomol Congress, called for an end to anarchy in the realm of conduct, and henceforward exhortations to channel sexual energy into socialist construction 
came thick and fast. A consensus emerged which repudiated the extremes of asceticism and promiscuity, but on the grounds of science rather than morality. Footnote 64. Zalkind, for example, upheld elements in the radical critique of bourgeois sexual relations, condemning intimism, the inward orientation of two people romantically in love, yet insisting that the, quote, proletariat at the stage of socialist accumulation is a thrifty, n-wordly, class, and it is not in its interests to allow creative energy to seep into sexual channels, end quote. Such thinking, coloured by contemporary interest in eugenics, put sexuality at the heart of a strategy of social engineering designed to enhance the reproductive and productive capacity of the new society. Such thinking lay behind the decriminalization of sodomy, since homosexuality under the influence of German sexology was now seen as a medical condition rather than a sin or crime. As the 1920s progressed, official thinking was increasingly animated by anxiety about sexual disorder. Footnote 65. By 1929, for example, hardened prostitutes, once seen as social victims, had begun to be sent to labour camps for willfully refusing to play a productive part in collective life. The increasing emphasis on the danger of sexual anarchy reflected Bolshevik fears that their orderly, rational project risked being overwhelmed by the libidinal energies of the body and the elemental forces of nature. And that's going to do it for this week. We'll be continuing with this chapter for probably the next two weeks. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. And this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.